a number of years ago, Marlene and I were out to dinner, and it was, um, uh, we were out just having dinner, just the two of us, and we got a text from uh, the boys, one of the boys, and it was a picture of the wall in our basement, and there was a hole in it. And so, and then with no caption, just a picture of a hole in the wall. And so, as you can understand, our first text back was, what happened? Because we need the story, right? You need the story of what happens because the story will elicit from me a certain kind of response. If they were just wrestling and they ran into the wall and there was a hole in the wall, then, you know, I might not like that. But, that, you know, it's four boys playing around. They're going to, you know, have fun. And, you know, who won the fight, by the way? You know, I might not like it, but I won't get too upset. If, however, Nathaniel bet Aiden 50 bucks he couldn't put his fist through the wall, and then he did that, then I'm going to be a little bit more, that, that's a different story, right? It's going to elicit from me a different response. If the older boys, because this was a number of years ago, the older boys took the little boys and used them as rare, battering rams, and that broke, that's going to elicit even yet a different response because everything depends on the story. And until I know the story, I don't know what my response should be. See, if you were to, this morning, walk into a conversation, say there's a couple of people down here at the front, and they're sitting in a, in a circle, and they're talking, and you walk up late to the conversation, and one of them says to the other, and then the rabbi said to the priest, and then he says something, and everybody bursts out in laughter, you know what? It was a joke. It was the punchline in a joke, but you missed the story leading up to the punchline, so you don't get it. The joke has no meaning because why? You don't know the story you got to know the story for the punchline to make sense. Do you know what we have in our world today? we got a lot of people, some of them even in the church, who don't know the story. They think the Christian faith is here for us to do better or to feel better. They think the Christian walk is just a moralistic thing, just try to do better, or it, it's a therapeutic thing, we just want you to feel better. And because they think that's the, the story, they've got the wrong story, and since they don't know the big story, number one, they don't know what their response to life should be. And number two, life doesn't make any sense to them. It's like a punchline on a joke they haven't heard. There's no meaning. Because they don't know the story that holds it all together and gives context for our experience and what our response so should be. Because if you don't know the story you're in, you're going to misunderstand your experience. If you, if you don't know the story that you're in, you're going to misunderstand some things that are going to happen in your life because you've missed, missed the punchline. And you might find life as meaningless. I mean, was Macbeth right? You remember the famous out-out brief candle? Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Is that life? Is that the story? A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Is that the story we're in? A couple years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an article called The Way We Read Now. And it was a story done on a thing called the Great American Read List. Uh, and there was research being done about what are the kinds of stories that Americans like to read. And the discovery was in the survey that for Americans, storytelling moves us far more than literary quality. So, so we'll read somebody who's not that great of a writer if they can tell a good story. Right? And, and here's what they write. It was written by Adam Kirsch. He writes this, and I quote, The Great American Read List confirms that there is a great hunger in our culture for grand mythic narratives. 
the adoration of the Harry Potter books, like the nearly scriptural status of the Star Wars movies, involves more than just fandom. They serve the purpose that was once served by biblical stories. They dramatize the spiritual truths and longings that shape our world, and that is what America's favorite books provide, the stories that we need to make sense of our lives. That wasn't a pastor that wrote that. That's the Wall Street Journal saying we have a longing inside of us for a story that will make sense of our lives. It used to be scripture, the author said, but, but now we look to Harry Potter to give us meaning, to make sense of our lives because we want to make sense of our lives. We have a drive, don't we? We have a drive to make sense of it all. I mean, Aristotle said all men by nature want to know. We want to know. And what is it we want to know? We want to know the answers to life's biggest questions. Things like, where do we come from? Why are we here? Who are we? Where are we going? I mean, these are the, the deepest existential questions of human existence. I mean, this is it, right? These, we want to know our origin, our purpose, our destiny, our, our identity. These are the most important questions. And the only way those answers are going to come to those questions is if we know the story. If we know the grand, sweeping narrative, the epic that we're all a part of. Because that's what Christianity claims to be. See, when you lose that, and you see Christianity as something that's moralistic, just trying to get you to do better, or therapeutic, just trying to get you to feel better. And let me just say, if you live in the big story, you will do better, and you will feel better. But it's not about that. It's not a moralistic, therapeutic thing. If you turn Christianity just into a list of rules, it will not only be boring, but it will leave you thirsty and hungry for more. Because then all you're going to have is a Christianity of tips and techniques three steps for a good quiet time, four habits of highly effective marriage communication. And all of that is fine, except it doesn't take your breath away. And if Christianity doesn't take your breath away, something else will. See, the Christian faith isn't just something that's there to make your life easier. See, we've forgotten that we're part of a grand narrative. We are part of a sweeping epic that gives our little stories meaning and answer life's deepest questions. We've forgotten the story. And as Tolkien says, there are some things that should never be forgotten. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to tell you the story again. We're beginning a new series of messages, and the series is entitled, This is Our Story. And, and throughout the series, we're going to go through the whole panorama of redemption. It starts with creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. We're going from Genesis to Revelation in this few weeks. The title of today's message is, Long Story Short. And I'm going to draw particularly on a book by John Eldridge called Epic. Now, in your bulletin, there is an annotated bibliography of a few books uh, that we're going to draw on for this series. As we're going, I mean, we're preaching the scriptures, but we're kind of drawing some ideas and way wording to put it into a certain kind of way so you can remember it. Uh, and there's a number of different, there's three different books actually in your bibliography, and I would encourage you just to take a look at it. But today, I'm going to draw primarily from John Eldridge, um, and his fingerprints will be all over the message. So here it is. Is the great story in four acts. This is the story that will answer the deepest questions in your life. Act one, eternal love. Act one begins with these words, in the beginning. All good stories begin that way, don't they? Once upon a time, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? 
all good stories begin that way because they follow the pattern that they borrow from the true story. That's where they get their power. Every story that moves you gets its power because it's drawing from the great story. So in the beginning, and your minds probably go to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But you can't start there. That's Act 2, actually. That just shows you how much we've lost the story. The story of God begins with God. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story because it's his story. G.K. Chesterton once said, I had always felt life first as a story, and if there is a story, there is a storyteller. Makes sense, right? I mean, if there's a story, there's a storyteller. So, so this story begins with the storyteller. So the Christian story actually begins in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, in the once upon a time, before all time, there was perfect love. The whole story began with something relational. The life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shows us real intimacy. The kind of love that you've been looking for your whole life. Maybe you didn't know it. Maybe you were looking for it in something else. You didn't know what it was you were looking for. But you've been looking for that kind of intimacy, that kind of love, your entire life. Now this explains a lot of things in our experience. It explains, first of all, how God can be love. I mean, for God to be love, there's got to be, and the scriptures say that he is love, there's got to be someone for him to love, right? And, and if God was all alone, then he wouldn't have become love until he created something. But God has never been alone. It has always been a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This explains why we are relational to the core of our being. Why nothing else will touch our hearts like relationships. I mean, you know this is true. There is nobody who can bring you more joy than your family and friends, right? And there is no one who can break your heart more than your family and friends because you're a relational being to the core. Why? Because you're made, we're going to find out in the next act, you're made in the image of a relational God. It also explains why the self-centered life never works. Have you noticed the self-centered life never, ever works because at the heart of all things, ultimate reality is relational to the core. The world, being a creation of this relational God, is rigged in such a way that life doesn't work when it's all about you. Some of you, you may have been wrestling with this. Why isn't life working? It's because it doesn't work if it's all about you. One late medieval writer put it this way he said creation is the overflow of the laughter of the trinity that, that's just a poetic kind of a picturesque way of saying that this god who was never lonely decides to share his love and create other characters in the story and that leads us to act two right which is the entrance of evil in Act 2, God begins to create. He, he creates angels. Apparently the angels were, and, and, and I guess certain things in heaven were created before the universe because Job 38 verses 6 and 7 implies that the angels were singing while the foundation of the earth was being laid. They were singing. Now we're not given a whole lot of insight in scripture about what it's like to be an angel, but notice this, never once do you ever encounter an angel in the Bible who's bored. Never. I mean, whatever they're doing, uh, you know, they're, they're having a ball. 
Furthermore, biblically speaking, they aren't Cupid dolls on Valentine's Day cards. They are massive, powerful, awesome, and dreadful beings. That's why when, every time in the Bible when an angel shows up, he, you know, people aren't going, hey, what's up, fool? No, they're not doing that. The angel's having to say, fear not, because most of the time, the human being is on their face, terrified, because they're dreadful beings. So these angels are there. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get a picture. Isaiah got a vision of the rest of reality, and the curtain is parted, and, and he sees the heavenly court, and he sees the glory of God, and there's these angelic beings flying around the throne, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy smokes. Do you see what I see? It's breathtaking. It's captivating. And they are standing in awe of God. Because as awesome as they are, they are nothing compared to the almighty creator. And it's taken their breath away. And they are in awe. At least most of them are. And then something happens. A turn in the story, something that's only really hinted at in Scripture, but it's an important part of the story, and it sheds light on the way things are today, why things are the way they are in our world. There's a rebellion in heaven, and, and there's an angel who, who apparently doesn't want to be best supporting actor. He, he wants to be center story. Now, we only get clues of this, right? There's only hints of it, like in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it, it, there's a hint of this. Jude 6 kind of hints at this. Luke 10, 18 hints at it. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 6, uh, when, when, when Paul's telling Timothy, hey, when you have an elder or an overseer, they need to be not be a recent convert uh, lest they become prideful and fall under the, the punishment or the judgment of the devil, and what he's implying there is that the way the devil became the devil was through pride. This is hinted at, I think, in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And, and the whole idea is there's a war in heaven. Revelation 12 is more clear. Verse 7 it says, and there was war in heaven. Well, that's kind of hard to miss, understanding. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. But notice, notice something in the story. Satan and his demons aren't utterly destroyed yet. There's still players in the story. A lot of people forget that. They forget that there, there is a devil and he has minions and they are part of the story. I mean, why is it? Why do you think it is? Let me just ask you a question. Why do you think it is that just about every single story you've ever loved had a villain in it? Just about every one. I mean, children's books, you know, we have the Big Bad Wolf. You got the Troll Under the Bridge. Uh, 101 Dalmatians had Cruella de Vil. Wizard of Oz had the Wicked Witch of the West. Narnia had Jadis. Star Wars had Darth Vader and Darth Maul and Darth Sidious. Lord of the Rings had the Dark Lord Sauron. Avengers has Thanos. I mean, why has nearly every story had a villain? Because your story does. Because the great story does. And if you forget that, you'll misinterpret. You'll misunderstand certain things that happen in your life that there is a villain and he hates you. I mean, this is something to take away and say. There is a villain who hates you, who hates your wife, who hates your husband, who hates your kids. And wants to take them. That's part of the story. 
He hates God and he hates God's kingdom. And with that scenario set, now God begins to create the universe. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever been like out in the country somewhere away from the city where the light pollution is not like it is, you know, like where we are, and it's on a clear night and there's no clouds, and you're out in a field, say maybe like down on the Hyde's farm or something, and you're in a field and you're just looking up at the sky and you're just seeing all of these, and it feels infinite. Have you ever had that feeling of just, I'm very small and the universe is very big? Have you ever had that feeling where your, your thoughts are just turned, in, you weren't even thinking about God, but, but you looked up and you saw the star, and, and you see the, Calvin called it, he said, creation is the theater of God's glory. God begins to create, and you see the wild goodness of God in creation. His creativity, his majesty, his love of beauty and diversity and order, he creates things like the Grand Canyon. How many people here, raise your hand if you've ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and had your breath taken away? How many people? Yeah. He creates things like Niagara Falls, the Swiss Alps. Here's a weird one, lightning. (laughs) Victoria Falls. We could go on. The point is, God's wild goodness is seen in creation, and and he gives the whole thing to Adam and Eve, the first couple, and he says, take it for a spin. Take it for a spin, you can do anything except eat from this one tree, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take care of it, and part of our role in the great story is to care for creation. I mean, Genesis 1, verse 28, what we call the, around here you hear people say sometimes it's the prime directive, right? This was the initial word given to us. It was this, uh, uh, Genesis 1, 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule, or the older translations say, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's our original job description. It's the prime directive, take care of the earth. We are God's vice regents, his care, we are supposed to care for creation under him. And that leads us into Act 3, which is the battle for the heart. And Act 3 opens, you find Adam and Eve enjoying the wild beauty of creation, but then this serpent, who himself questioned the heart of God, gets Adam and Eve to start questioning the heart of God. You know, did God really say, you know, I tell you, God doesn't want you to eat that because he doesn't want you to be like, he's trying to get them to question, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. Maybe God's holding out on you. Maybe God isn't all good. And we chose poorly and we opened Pandora's box. We kicked off the honeymoon by sleeping with the enemy because of that. We submitted to the bondage of the will. See, when you live in a Christianity of tips and techniques, you trivialize sin. It's not that big a deal, you know. Sin is just like something external. It's something out there, you know. It's, it's we ran a stop sign or we drank too much or we said a bad word or whatever. That's what happens when you have a Christianity that's, that's moralistic and therapeutic. You, sin's really not that, you know, it's not that big a deal. But, but, but God calls sin adultery of the heart. 
It's what you give your heart to other than the heart of God. And it's more than just paradise that was lost. Now we lost the relationship we had with God and the freedom we enjoyed. And God comes into the garden and he says, what have you done? What have you done? I made you for freedom and for intimacy with me and each other. And you've given that all away. And you've traded it for bondage to your worst enemy. And all of a sudden, at the darkest point of the whole story, when a curse comes upon the human race and the universe as a whole, the heart of God is about to be revealed in even a greater way than it was in creation because at this point, he shows us something we'd never seen before in the story. Uh, and it's part of the story you must understand. It is, in a word, grace. Grace is a central part of the story, and if you don't understand grace, you won't understand your story. You won't understand the great story. God says to Adam and Eve, I will come for you. Your lives are going to be hard now. They're going to be very hard. Evil is going to be rampant. Sin is going to be rampant. It's going to crouch at the door. It's going to want to devour you, but I will come for you. I will come And act three entails then not our pursuit of God, but his pursuit of us. And the story takes all these twists and turns to Noah and Abraham and the nation of Israel. God, in his wild pursuit of us, is looking for a people who will turn back to him. Why? Because for reasons known only to him, he loves us. And he loves us with a love that we cannot comprehend, a love that we could not ever earn. And no matter how many times in the story God's spokesmen, his prophets, call people back to him, it never works. Philip Yancey says that that when you read the Old Testament prophets, it's like hearing a lover's quarrel through an apartment wall. Because over and over again in the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea, God describes our relationship to him as a grand love affair, and we've turned away. We've we've looked to other things to fill what only God can fill. Like like Aiden was saying in his testimony, he's not the only one that's done it. Every single one of us has done this. We've looked to, and sometimes it's not bad things. It's not like drugs all the time. It's like TV or work or sports or food or money or sex or family or video games. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. We've all had things that we gave our hearts to other than the heart of God. You see what's happening? You see what's happening? The the, the villain, the enemy of our soul is trying to make us forget the great story of the gospel. He doesn't want us to remember that God in his love has pursued us to win us back to the love that created us in the first place. And that's what the enemy of our soul has been trying to do in your life. He's been trying to get you to trade in this grand love affair with a God who is a relational loving God to trade it in for a religion of do's and don'ts that parts your heart. That's his strategy. But the story now begins to take an unbelievable turn because this God who promised that he would come for us, he stops sending emissaries and he comes himself in person. We call it Christmas which is kind of a simple way to say the ancient of days sneaks into the enemy camp disguised as a newborn baby. 
But he didn't stay a baby, by the way. He grew up. He demonstrates the heart of the Father to all of us. How? By proclaiming that God still loves us and the kingdom of God is near. And what does Jesus do? He heals people. He delivers people. He sets them free in order to say, this is what God is like. Isn't this interesting? When God himself comes, he doesn't go around killing people, cursing people, you know, putting disease on people. He does just the opposite. He brings people back to life. Spiritually and physically, he heals diseases. People who are blind can see, and people who are crippled get healed, and they're walking, and they're dancing, and, 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 and he multiplies food and provides for people. In order to say, this is what God is like. And then, as if that wouldn't have been enough, before we loved him, before we called out to him, he goes to the cross in our place. Yes, you know, there's, there is a lot of tragedy in this life. I know, there is. In this story that we're in, the story we're in has a lot of brokenness and evil and sin. And you may ask the question, can we trust the heart of God? Because if, you if you're just getting your news, your information is coming from your Apple news feed on your phone, if that's the sum total of revelation that you're going for, the evidence is going to be mixed. Is God good? Is he there? I don't know. If that's where you're getting your information from. But if you go to the New Testament, over and over again it says, look at the cross. Do you have any idea how loved you are? This is how loved you are, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the cross. Just look at the cross. If you're in doubt, If you're wondering here today, you're looking, you're, you're saying, I, I, don't, I don't know if God is good. I don't know if he even knows my story. I don't know if you got questions. Look at the cross. Some years ago, I had a young lady who was in youth group that came to my office for counseling, and she said, I don't even know what love is. What is love? 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That second half of the verse, we kind of rejoice in the first half. Second half is... We wouldn't even know what love is if it were not for the cross. That's what love is. It is proof positive. It is definitive evidence that you, are, you have never been loved so fiercely. He came for us just like he said he would. And he didn't just come for us. He died for us for the forgiveness of our sins and to give us life. He didn't stay dead. There was a resurrection. He lives. He ascended into heaven. He rules and he reigns. And Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And you know what he's doing? He's calling us into his story to enjoy the relationship that exists in the Trinity and has existed since before Act 1 began. And that leads us, fourth and finally, to Act 4. The kingdom restored. And this is where many of us 
who've gotten the story right so far get it wrong. Maybe that's too strong a language. It's not that we get it wrong. It's that we get it, it's at least incomplete. See, for a lot of people, especially very well-meaning Christians who are frustrated with the current state of the world, and let me just say, I feel your pain, okay? <laughs> I'm frustrated with the current state of the world as well, all right? Uh, but, but sometimes well-meaning Christians who are kind of frustrated get into an escape mentality. And, and the mentality is, I'm just going to go to heaven and the world can go to hell. To hell with the world. I'm out of here, baby. And we get an escape mentality, which, guys, that's the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus could have just stayed. He could have just said, well, go to hell then. But he didn't. He left heaven and came to earth in order to win us. So the whole point of our faith is not to, I'm just going to escape and get to, because here's how some people read it. Here's how some people read it. The story ends like this, okay? They say, we say a prayer, we accept Jesus in our heart, and then when we die, we go to heaven and live happily ever after. Which is true in a way, but it absolutely is not the point of the story. That would be like, you know, you know we have... Um, Another one of our, forgive me for a, a, a second son illustration, uh, but uh, our, our second son, Graham, uh, and Kara are getting married in the spring. And, uh, you know, Scripture says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So our son is walking in a new level of favor, and Kara, new level of favor, and it's very exciting. But can you imagine, and I'm going to have the honor of, of officiating their wedding. Can you imagine, what if I got up there in the day and said, hey, do you take her? Okay. You, you take him? Okay. Now, because you said I do, this means you'll be taken care of in your retirement. What do you think they would say? What do, you, what do you think Carol would say? What do you, what do you think Graham would say? Graham would say, I, I just put down a deposit on a, an apartment. We, we were expecting to have a, like a life between now and retirement, like other activities, right? We're like, there's, we were expecting to raise children, you know, go to football games, serve at church, you know, get, you know, all it like, like we go on vacations, you know, like we were, we were kind of thinking there was going to be life. See, Jesus' offer is an offer not just for a great retirement package, though that would be enough. The offer is life together now. Jesus said it this way, John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen, eternal life is not something you get when you die. It's something you get when you believe. And that's the promise of Jesus. That's the promise of the Messiah. Not just any old type of life, but life to the full. And here's the paradox. The only way to get that life is to give up your life. Because I think all of us are like, oh, yeah, I definitely want life. Oh, I want eternal life, definitely. I definitely want that. But the way to get that is to give it up. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You see, you guys, salvation isn't just fire insurance. It's not a retirement plan. It's that you relinquish control and say, Jesus, I'm not Lord, you're Lord. I believe, and, that, and that's what it means to believe Jesus, is to give it all up for him. 
Not to say, I, I believe Jesus exists one upon, once upon a time. That doesn't do diddly squat. To believe Jesus means I'm giving it all up for him. And as you enter into that life, you know what comes with that new life? A new mission. And our mission is to be carriers of that life to people who are dead. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join Jesus in his great campaign of redemption and restoration. The New Testament says, new creation. And see, if you don't know the story, the mission doesn't make any sense to you. But if you know the story, you understand that it's really not even your mission. It's his mission, and you join God on his mission. Many people, even at church, sometimes they struggle to find any meaning in life because they don't know their mission. They don't know their purpose. You know, you heard the old saying, uh, two best days in your life is the day you're born and the day you find out why. A lot of people have never had that second day. They don't know their purpose. They don't know their mission. And, and because of that, happiness eludes them. Joy eludes them. Because here's the paradox. Just like there's a paradox, the only way to get life is to give up your life. There's a paradox. Fulfillment is actually found in pouring yourself out. It's where a lot of people say, well, listen, I need, I need, you know, I need to be taken care of. I need my own personal maintenance. So, yeah, my friend Jim Newsom always said this. He says, uh, your maintenance is found in your mission. That's kind of a good turn of phrase there. Your maintenance, that what you need, is found in your mission, reaching out to others. See, our job is to go to the dead places, to go to the dark places, to go to the demonic places and bring the life of God and see him resurrect and redeem that which was broken and dead. That's our mission. Our mission is to, full of the Spirit, alive to the Spirit, led by the... Please, don't go on your mission without being led by the Spirit. But our mission is to be full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, storm the gates of hell. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, gates are defensive. That means our part of our mission is to go against it. We're supposed to be storming the gates of hell. God is at work this very moment. See, God's on a mission to redeem humanity and redeem the earth and the entire universe. And in the end, you know what there's going to be? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and every wrong is going to be made right, and every tear is going to be wiped away from every eye. Death will be no more. Sickness will be no more. Righteousness will reign, and justice will rule, and we will be a part of it. That is the glorious end of the story. And God is inviting you into that story today. And over the next seven or eight weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be unpacking this story that you're a part of. And God's inviting you into that story because it is the only story that gives your life meaning. And at the same time, answers the deepest longings of your heart. It is our story.